Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first edition of The Edric Show. I am Edric Jerome, your host. I want to thank you for tuning in. Please make sure you uh, hit the subscribe button on our YouTube channel, and you can get all the notifications as we upload content uh, going forward. So again, inaugural edition of The Edric Show. Very happy that you're tuning in and checking us out. And as always, we offer you intelligent conversation with interesting people. Uh, our very first guest is an old friend of some of my previous shows, uh, Dr. Gail Myers. Dr. Myers is a cultural anthropologist. She's also the co-founder of Farms to Grow, which is ba uh, based out of Oakland, California. She's been a strong advocate for African-American farmers for more than 20 years. And she's here to discuss her new project, Rhythms of the Land, a multimedia documentary film. Rhythms of the Land is a valentine to the generations of black farmers in the United States from enslavement period to the present, whose intense love of the land and dedication to community enabled them to survive against overwhelming odds. Dr. Myers, wonderful to see you again. Thank, thank you for, for coming on the Edric Show. Well, thank you for the invitation, Edric. It's always a pleasure. All right, so let's get into it. Um, Filmmaker. <laughs> so that's, tell us about this uh, uh, title, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're very talented, very talented. So tell us about the documentary uh, and why this story is so important to the history of this nation. This story is the missing link. It is the missing piece of the American agrarian uh, scene. You know, uh, historically growing up looking uh, at television, many of us, uh, you know, from a farmer perspective, we see the, the white guy with the overalls and the cowboy hat and the cowboy boots and, you know, maybe next to some cattle or uh, a big, you know, thousand acre field of a commodity crop. We have missed acknowledging the valuable role that African-American farmers and African-American communities in general have played in the development of the American economy. I mean, of course, it is common knowledge of the 400 years in which uh, African hands built uh, the part of this diaspora from the Caribbean to Brazil to uh, North America here, particularly in the Southern parts of North America. Mm -hmm. And to have done such amazing feats without any acknowledgement and without any visibility. It's just a sheer total disregard of, of a humanity, of a group of people that have done uh, in such loving ways, grown our food, grown our communities. I mean, if you think of the state of Carolina, in fact, um, even today, Carolina has mostly always been predominantly black, hmm. you know, starting from the late 1600s, when they were going, they, as in the uh, enslavers and those that were investing in uh, the slave trade, were going into Senegambia and bringing back uh, African families, African uh, women, men, children, to build the infrastructure of South Carolina. At one point, rice plantations covered the entire state. And who do you think built those, that infrastructure? for those plantations. Uh, these were men and women who were gifted at working the, um, the water, engineers at uh, uh, developing out of just sheer uh, big oak trees and, 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 and much of this part of the country, you know, after the country was taken away from the Native Americans, 
most of this land was undisturbed. So you've got a forest that has been completely undisturbed where you had these Africans that came in with their hands and a lot of the soil that was moved, they moved it out of baskets. They moved it out of the wicker baskets that they made. Thousands and thousands of acres of land and thousands of hours of investing in the infrastructure. So that's just one state, South Carolina. And if you look into the rice economy of this country, we'll know that the uh, early, early 1700s, when they, uh, they as in the uh, enslaved Africans that were uh, being forced to labor on these labor, forced labor camps that they want to call mm-hmm. plantations, uh, that money, the sale from those particular products, they went to Europe. And the sale of that rice was able to help fund the Industrial Revolution. Mm. They were to build these big machines. So here we are, having built this country on our backs without acknowledgement. Oh, it's, it's been time to talk about Rhythms of the Land. And these are stories of families that I interviewed in the summer of 2012. I was in a car and I knew, I had about 10 farmers, there were 30 about, about 28 farmers that I totally interviewed. And I had a list initially before I left California of about 10 farmers and about five or six states that I was going to travel. And I ended up going to 10 states and interviewing almost 30 farmers. And this was because of the goodwill of the farmers that I met initially and said, you've got to talk to this farmer and you've got to talk to that farmer. So it's a story that's long overdue. It is a labor of love. I saw this story when I conducted my first interview with a black farmer in Ohio in 1997. Uh, His story, I was able to capture, you know, writing my notes, but there was something about the visual. It was something about the, the, the character of his face, the lines in his face, the, the nuances of his voice. Uh, his, his, the way that he, uh, you know, farmed the land. I wanted people to see that. And so in my mind, Rhythms of the Land actually started in 1997. Uh, but of course, I had to finish my dissertation and get on with my life. Um, but looking back, yes, this is a story that I saw writing uh, well over 25 years ago. Hmm. Um, filming a documentary uh, like this, especially, you know, you have to gain the trust of the people that you're talking to uh, and get them to buy in telling their story and trusting you. So how did you build that trust and and create that safe environment for them to share these remarkable stories uh, on film? Well, Edric, um, it was something that I learned as an anthropologist um, doing my research and learning at Ohio State. You know, how you enter into a community is everything. One of the things that aided me in this particular endeavor of filming the stories for Rhythms of the Land was that I had maintained contacts with some of the farmers that I knew in Ohio. And even as I was doing some of my pilot interviews in the the late 90s, I met farmers in Alabama and Georgia. Hmm. And so I was able to gain entree basically by reconnecting with some of these farmers And they were on my list to interview and they referred me to several other farmers. So 
when I entered into the homes of these farmers, I had someone that, you know, in anthropology, we call a gate opener. Mm. Uh, some people say they're gatekeeper keepers, but I don't think they keep the gate. They don't, they open the gate. Um, and so the gate openers that I had, because they have such credibility, uh, and because I enter uh, with the most humblest uh, and respectful way, I was able to, uh, with just goodwill and, and, and just, I guess, being raised well, uh, <laughs> you know, able to, to, you know, really connect with farmers. You know, as I told them and shared with them why this project was so important, they agreed. I didn't have to do much convincing. Uh, many of these farmers had overcome so much to maintain their land, to get their land, and they were eager to tell their stories. Uh, one of the first persons that I set out to interview, <clears throat> excuse me. Yes, sir. Was a man named Alvin Stepp. Now, Alvin was very instrumental in getting the Pigford versus Glickman litigation moved forward. Um, in the late 90s, uh, several hundred black farmers sued the USDA for discrimination, years of discrimination, decades of discrimination. And they needed, in order to issue a class action suit, you have to first have issued a complaint well, many of these farmers did issue complaints during the Reagan administration, uh, but they closed the Office of Civil Rights at the end of the Reagan administration. And then when uh, uh, George W. Bush came in, uh, they actually um, shredded the complaints that were issued during the Reagan administration. So when it was time for them to issue the class action suit, they couldn't find any of the complaints. And they said, well, you've got a good case, but no one complained before. How do you all of a sudden come here? And the farmer said, no, we've complained, but the papers were shredded. They did find evidence of that. Well, this one guy named Alvin Stepp, he also was a farmer, but he also has another job, which often farmers have to take on another full-time job and do the farming. He was a truck driver, so he was often away from home. Uh, his mother had called him and said he has a letter that they were about to foreclose on the farm. So he comes back to Arkansas and, um, you know, he's looking for a lawyer. He's looking for a lawyer to take the case uh, to keep them from foreclosing on his land. So in his look for a lawyer, he is driving around Little Rock, Arkansas, I guess where they have a lot of the lawyer's offices looking on the marquees and he finds a lawyer he and he tells this story in the film. So you got to watch the film. Of course. How he tells it. I do it no justice. <laughs> but he goes into this law firm and he puts his name. He says, I want to talk to a lawyer about uh, my farm real estate. So they put his name on a list and they look Elvin steps. So the woman I guess the receptionist goes back and um, says to someone, Elvin Stepp is here. So someone comes out and they said, are you Elvin Stepp? And he says, yes, I'm Elvin Stepp. So the person goes back into the room. Pretty soon someone else comes out and from another room farther up the hall and they say, you're Elvin Stepp? 
And he says, yes. And he says, at this point, he's getting frustrated. He said, why is everybody calling my name, asking me, am I Alvin Stemp? Well, they bring him into the office and they tell him, they said, as he comes in with his big binder of papers, they said, uh, why are you here? And they, he said, he told them, he said, well, if you're Alvin Stepp, you don't have to worry about this. We've been looking for you. So when <laughs> Bill Clinton was governor of Ohio, uh, I'm sorry, Arkansas, he knew the Stepp family. Uh, mm -hmm. Alvin's family was very well known. And uh, Bill Clinton knew that Alvin had filed a complaint. So at that point, uh, later, Bill Clinton became president. And he told the people around him, he said, you all can't find any complaints. I want you to go down to uh, Arkansas, Little Rock, and find this skinny black guy named Alvin Stepp, because he knew Alvin had issued a complaint. Mm. So lo and behold, when they asked him, they said, Alvin, do you happen to have any copies of the complaint that you issued? Alvin says, I got every piece of paper I ever had. <laughs> so Alvin goes to his storage and he brings back with the time stamp, wow. the 1980, wow. when he applied, he complained. And so because of his paperwork, they were able to move forward with Pickman, Pickford. Now, of course, he was punished because of it, uh, as systems seem to do. Uh, but he's featured in this story, and I couldn't wait to interview Alvin. So one of the you know, main thing was to get down there and go to Arkansas. But by the time I had gotten to Arkansas, I had already interviewed about 10 farmers. So I was in Georgia, Tal uh, Georgia, Mississippi, Arkansas, South Carolina, North Carolina, Texas, uh, Louisiana, uh, Florida. Did I say Florida? Um, Tennessee, Mississippi, and it was incredible. I had uh, expected to stay in a hotel for the four or five weeks that I was on the road. I spent two nights in a hotel. Mm. I was expecting to be very tired, and I was, uh, but I also had upon two occasions uh, people who offered to drive me. Mm. So it it was a group effort. It was you know, I often think of um, how my elders say, you put one forward, you put one step forward and God will put the second. I put one forward, step forward, and there were about 10 steps after that. <laughs> uh, I had so much love and, and so much support. Uh, the farmers really wanted this project to get done. <laughs> and uh, so when I came out of the field in 2012, I expected it to be finished by 2013 because many of the farmers that I interviewed, I have two that were in their 100s, mm. uh, several in their 90s. And I wanted this film to be shown. I wanted them to, to honor, I wanted them to see it. Uh, but the elders have all passed on, many mm. of them have all passed on uh, mm. since 2012. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it, it was, uh, you know, I, I don't wanna say easy, but once, you come from your heart, you know, I, I express to people that I, I'm, I'm doing this because it's what I know I need to do. Uh, Spirit has laid this on my heart. So I was very welcomed. And um, there were a few farmers that I wasn't able to interview because of time and other kinds of logistics. But uh, yeah, it's a very uh, rich, very full 
uh, documentary of so many wonderful stories. That's just a beautiful, beautiful story. And thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I could just see people opening up their homes to you and eating some of that good food that they've produced yeah. and natural yeah. and fresh and just, uh, just amazing. Yeah, I, always, I always had to stay for lunch. <laughs> I was always sent on my way with a basket of corn or uh, bags of uh, onions and garlic. And what I ended up doing is when I got to my next uh, trip, I would share those with people. I was always sharing things that farmers gave me. I couldn't bring, couldn't fly it back to California. <laughs> um, now you mentioned the, 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 the fight that um, farmers have gone through. Now that fight continues today, does it not? In many ways it does, Edric. Certainly the litigation has been settled. Uh, there was even a pig for two because there were pieces of it that were overlooked and improperly litigated. Um, but what goes on today are, you know, the complaint that the farmers had, the major complaint is that the people that occupied those county agencies were the ones that were discriminating against them when it came time to applying for a loan, because that's where you go, you go to your county. Well, those people still occupy those positions. They did not uh, get reprimanded. Um, nothing happened. They didn't even change the, 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 the composition of some of those offices. So in many ways that meant business as usual. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, even recently the black farmer relief bill that was part, the emergency relief bill that was part of the um, American rescue plan uh, intentionally uh, sets aside uh, 5 billion for black farmers because they continue to deal with injustices, they continue, this particular bill is to relieve indebtedness up to 120%. And that hundred, they had to put that 120% in there, not just 100%, because some of them have two mortgages, second mortgages, mm. you know, um, and they have such high interest rates, much higher than white farmers. And so they have had to deal, continue to deal. Even when the USDA said, yes, we were wrong, we acknowledged that we were, we discriminated. Uh, they say that the USDA was the last plantation, but they still didn't make the structural changes. Uh, of course, you know, racism is still very much embedded uh, in the fabric of this country. And so that same ideal still remains. There was no attention to, um, I, I think maybe some of these offices had uh, you know, cultural uh, diversity training or, you know, other kinds of sensitivity training. But in general, they went on about their work. They continued to support white farmers at a higher rate uh, than black farmers. And, you know, there were a lot of reasons for that. So, yeah, the struggle continues, I'll say. And one uh, important element of this particular documentary is that we'll have stories that we can share, you know, USDA people can come to these screenings and it's nothing that they haven't heard before. Mm -hmm. um, but when farmers in North Carolina are talking about the same thing and farmers in Arkansas and farmers in Mississippi uh, and in, in nine years ago, that's not that long ago. And I dare say if I got in a, in a car for four weeks and a camera, I'd probably hear some of the same issues hmm. around discrimination. So yeah, it's a, it's a long road. Uh, 
And I think just like what we deal with um, as Black Americans, there's always this double standard. There's always the expectation that we're not good enough, that we don't deserve it. And I think what uh, I would see and hear with regard to the landscape and the agrarian scene is when Black farmers began to acquire land. So we went from you know, 1863, not owning very much land at all in the Southern states. Uh, black people did own land in the Northern states, but in the Southern states, uh, we had just come out of the enslavement. So from 1863 to 1910, about a 50 year period, blacks accumulated 213,000 uh, black families were either partial or full-time owners of 12.6 million acres. That's quite a feat. Mm. And it wasn't from a government grant. It wasn't from a Pigford. It wasn't a handout. These farmers and these families had to work uh, fingers to bone, uh, blood, sweat, and tears to get this land, only to lose it. And part of that, of course, the Jim Crow, all those laws came in around after 1910. But uh, these were white communities that felt like Black people didn't deserve it. There were almost 180-something all-Black towns fully functioning, independent. They had banks. Think of Tulsa, mm -hmm. towns in Alabama, mm -hmm. towns in Mississippi, mm -hmm. all-Black towns, very successful, uh, to only be eventually terrorized through lynchings and bombings and, uh, and just outright just running them off their land. You think Rosewood. These were the constants that blacks had to deal with from whites feeling like you didn't deserve that. So they would take those people's land. <laughs> and you know, that's part of what we'd love to see within the reparations of some of these places like Tulsa. I think there has been a commission that was created to really investigate uh, the land and the wealth that was, was taken, just stolen uh, from these families in Tulsa. And so uh, there, there, there is a, a lot of, a long way to go before we get full equity and equality. And so a lot of the work, you know, with the organizations, we have a nonprofit called Farms to Grow. Uh, there's the National Black Food Alliance, uh, South. Uh, work. There are many organizations that are working to ensure that black farmers and black communities have what they need to be self-sufficient and grow their foods. And that was one of the main things. We, we needed the self-sufficiency and we needed the safety. We weren't safe uh, in these integrated communities. Um, and so it was out of a necessity. It was out of the need to develop our own infrastructure and our own schools and, and, and churches and build our own neighborhoods out of, in many of the ways in which, you know, Booker T. Washington urged, uh, drop your buckets right where you are. Hmm. And so that's what these farmers did. You know, Allensworth, California was one of those cities out of the turn of the century, uh, Colonel Allensworth, uh, who had been a successful military, I think a Navy uh, officer uh, and followed Booker T. Washington's urging and Booker T visited Allensworth. And, and so we've had to be very intentional on how we create community. And thank goodness, these, some of the early farming uh, families created some of these early 
communities that later on became the infrastructure for incorporated uh, communities of uh, black uh, families. Hmm. So we, we got a lot of long way to go to, for full equality. Um, you mentioned Farms to Grow Incorporated, uh, again, which is based out of Oakland. And tell us about that organization, um, its purpose, goals for the community. And uh, and also, you know, how has, because I know you distribute fresh fruit and vegetables in the communities, uh, communities that don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how has the pandemic affected uh, your ability to, to get yeah. needed produce into these communities? Well, Farms to Grow is an interesting story. Uh, when I graduated at Ohio State, and it was at, uh, you know, one of those uh, events where we're all standing around eating cake and cookies <laughs> and, and drinking punch and talking about what we're going to do next. And, you know, listening to my colleagues share, uh, this one is going off to uh, an archaeological institute and teaching at University of Chicago. And they turn around and they said, Gil, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, but I got farms to grow. And I said that really meaning <laughs> to do something about the sad stories that I heard throughout my five years, uh, working on my dissertation and interviewing and writing about black farmers. And so when I uh, left Ohio, I actually moved briefly back to Atlanta, which is where I got my master's degree in applied anthropology, because I figured I'm going back to the South. This is where black farmers are. I need to be there to offer some support. So I get back to Atlanta and I started asking people in 2002 about agriculture, about um, sustainable agriculture. At that time, the, it wasn't a, a commonly used term in, in Atlanta as it is now. Mm. So I ended up coming to, and I was frustrated by that because that was my theoretical approach. Yes, I'm working with black farmers, but I want to talk to me about agroecology and sustainable agriculture. That was my framework. Um, so I thought, okay, this is going to be a little challenging work to define the term because most of the time when I introduced it, they said, well, what is that anyway? So I ended up doing a lot of education. Uh, I fortunately got a temporary consulting gig in San Francisco area in 2003. Went to California. I started asking people about who's doing sustainable agriculture. Never did I have to define the terms. What I had a problem with was trying to keep up with all the names that people told me to go to this person. Now you go to that person mm-hmm. and, you know, lists of like five names. And I thought, this is great. They get it. So I decided that I want to relocate to California. And then I started talking to people about black farmers. And it was another moment of sort of sadness that I remember experiencing in Columbus through my dissertation. The black farmers were telling me the same thing that the black farmers in Ohio Uh, we're dealing with, and the black farmers in Alabama and Georgia. No assistance from the local ag communities, uh, no access to distribution outlets, very minimal support to grow their farms. And I had maintained a communication with Gordon Reed, who is the co-founder of the organization. And I remember it was in September, shortly after I had been there and, you know, got my place kind of moving around. And I said, this is ridiculous. How come this most progressive state in the U.S., black farmers are still doing, uh, not doing well, not being able to participate fully? And I said, we got to do something. So we started Farms to Grow uh, in September of 2004 to do something, just to stand in the gap, because the agencies that were funded to do so 
were not doing that. And so it, it occurred to me that, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty smart, know how to do a few things. Let's start a nonprofit and see what we can do. And so that's uh, been 16 years ago that we started Farms to Grow. Um, we've had many, many successes. We work with farmers, we work with youth. We have a Black Farming Film Night. Of course, we have our CSA, the Community Supported Agriculture, uh, where we um, support Black farmers. So we distribute their produce through a CSA. We started the Freedom Farmers Market in 2013 mm. because Black farmers were telling us that they were waiting six months and 18 months to get into the predominantly white markets. Uh, and so the venue that we started was uh, basically a distribution outlet, but it actually became more than that. It was a very liberatory space where we use that opportunity to reclaim our power over our food. You know, there are a lot of negative narratives around black farming, uh, a lot of negatives around some black food like watermelon. We had a watermelon eating contest. Everything we did, we engaged our community to think deeper not just about what you eat, but your relationship to the farmer, your relationship to land, the power. And so it proved to be more than a market. It, it really was a, a serious moment in time where uh, people came to learn, to share information, to, to give. We had a, 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 a book. Initially what we had, I have a cousin that worked for Half Price. Well, he was a school teacher but he would get donations of books from half price books. And he came to the market one day, he says, guys, if you ever need books, let me know. So we got all these books from half price books. <laughs> First, we had like five uh, boxes and we encouraged people to get a book and bring a book. And so after, if, you know, a couple of years, we just kept the book things going. We always had a table for books and you would not believe how people would come, would pull up a chair and they just start reading. You know, it was just a wonderful, we had chess and checkers and dominoes at the market. Uh, we had young people that came with their parents that didn't want to leave. It was a safe space. We had this guy come one day, big burly guy, <laughs> and he walks through the gate and he says, I feel so safe here. He says, oftentimes when I'm walking around Oakland, I don't feel safe. He said, how can, we in, how can we take this feeling to all parts of Oakland? <laughs> so we created a very unique space with uh, intention to re-decolonize the food system, which um, I think the full body of my work as an anthropologist is really about decolonizing, you know, the food system, the approach to how we uh, talk about a community of people. In my particular case, uh, it's Black farmers. You know, I was going through graduate school and hearing all these theories that were, you know, written by black men. I mean, I'm sorry, by white men, mostly, not even a lot of women. And I brought up uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, and his double consciousness as a theory and only to be shut down by one of my professors. And I said, no, this is theory. Hmm. You know, so I went through my graduate program, my master's and my Ph.D., feeling very marginalized, very, you know, anything I had to say was discredited. 
Um, and, and I had the most major ideas. As a matter of fact, after class, my classmates were coming up to me and said, hey, you want to go meet for coffee? Let's talk a little bit more about that. Hmm. Um, and so it was important to me that as I did research, you know, because one of the things that, you know, we know about anthropologists is that they have been very, the very first to forward a colonial model, you know, going around the world and looking at other communities as others, writing very derogatory terms and, and, and stuff to make them seem like they were uh, a human level below, hu below human. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be that kind of anthropologist. I didn't want to be the kind of anthropologist that ignored my role in the work that um, I was able to just, you know, get a PhD, doctor this and go off and get a nice name on an office and live a, you know, so-called quote unquote happy life. I had no, I, I had no intention of doing that. What I did want to do was as I heard these stories from these farmers, I wanted to care in many ways. This work was a caring work. I wanted to give back. I wanted to acknowledge the, the places and, you know, going through graduate school where I felt marginalized and make sure that that was not something that I transferred or conveyed to the people that I interviewed. I entered with a lot of respect and acknowledging that the discipline had done a lot of errors. Mm -hmm. And so the work that I felt like was important that I could do, in many ways, it was a corrective. It was a way to show power uh, and a type of, of honor and dignity to a group of people that had also been marginalized, that had also been disrespected and disregarded. So the work in my, you know, my, all of my, my work as a cultural anthropologist uh, has been in my mind, um, a bit of a corrective for anthropologists. So we can see that there's another way you can study community. You know, you don't have to go out and be so objective and, you know, oh, I didn't see that. I got nothing to say about that. Well, you know, you can't go uh, and enter in, in communities and just come out like, uh, you know, with, without empathy. Hmm. I had a lot of empathy uh, for the work. As a matter of fact, when I first started interviewing uh, my farmers, I think on the first five interviews, I, you know, they were all out far away from Ohio, two, three hours. They were in the rural parts. I sobbed coming back from those interviews for two, three hours hmm. because the stories that I heard uh, many of them I couldn't even believe. My first uh, interview where it was, I was shaking my head, I ended up calling my mom, not giving her the names of the farmers, but sharing some of what she said. And I couldn't believe it. And my mom was like, yep, that's, that sounds like them, hmm. you know. Um, but it really, uh, it, it, you know, I was impassioned. Uh, those tears you know, watered this, this, this flower of a commitment to do something. And that's really what grows inside of me. It grows that, and this film is, is part of that. It is another manifestation of how can I give back? How can I uh, give something? How can I have an impact uh, uh, on this community of people that have been so wonderful? And, and, and even though they haven't received dignity. I see them as being very dignified in how they go about their mm -hmm. farming. They mm -hmm. go about it with a lot of respect. 
they're stewards of the land. They don't see themselves as so-called owners of the land. Yeah, you know, you got to take a mortgage and you know, the, the land was handed down to you. So you got to claim a sense of ownership over it. But the whole notion of that's, you know, controlling, dominating me, you know, that's not their come from. Their come from was how to take care of the land, how to make sure the soil was replenished uh, if they were involved uh, in fishing, how to make sure that the fish were not overfished. If, if they were basket weavers, how to make sure that they didn't over harvest a particular straw. The consideration that these farmers took to every part of life, even the community uh, that they fed their food, they took such honor, and I, I would say in a, in a dignified way. So I, I wanted to make sure that I could help support this, this legacy hmm. that has to keep going. You know, I wanted to do my part to carry the baton for this distance mm -hmm. so I can pass it off. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Uh, we have a couple minutes left. So let me ask you now, um, so the film currently is in post-production. It's going to be released later this year, correct? Yes, yes. And we have uh, uh, contracted with a group of editors, and they are now looking at the assets. They're editing the interviews. We'll have, you know, various versions and various Sure, things. sure. But uh, our expectation is uh, September or October for the screening, for the first screening. Um, but you've also scheduled several events uh, kind of related to yeah. this project over the yeah. next several months to engage the community and continue the dialogue. So maybe you can walk us through a couple of those in the next few minutes. I would love to. Uh, and we can get, you know, we'll, we'll put all the links, all the information in our, um, oh, on our yeah. YouTube page. So. This is very exciting. So what we're doing, we, we're curating a seven-part series called Ear to the Ground. And each month, the last Saturday of each month, we will engage audiences on a different topic related to black farming. The very first month we showed the trailer and um, I was the guest and it was moderated by Shelley uh, Dyer. Uh, for March, we're doing black women horticulturalists. Uh, this is amazing. Who knew that uh, Mahalia Jackson was a flower farmer and uh, stagecoach Mary also. and. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston's sister-in-law, Blanche. These are some amazing stories about uh, a group of women that grew the emancipation oak from an acorn. Wow. Again, stories that would not have been told and, and found out about were not for the brilliant research of Abra Lee. And so the end of April, we're having conversations with Black chefs, uh, Chef Farmer Matthew Rayford will be the moderator for that. And he has invited four chefs to be uh, to, to accompany him on that show. In May, we're having uh, wise women. Uh, so they'll talk about the, the healing herbs and those things that, that grow in the forest mm -hmm. that uh, oftentimes uh, a, a mother will call a grandmother and say, what do I need to get for this cholera or for the babies, this or that. It was always, uh, in most cases, the mother, the elders that kept that knowledge. We will honor black farmers. We'll have uh, in July, which is the National Black Ag Week. Um, that's in it, and it's in honor of Dr. George Washington Carver's birthday. So we'll have an, a, a month where we honor and award and recognize black farmers. 
Then we have a, a, a session called Conversations Around Black Opera. Um, you know, as, as many people know, Paul Roberson and Marian Anderson, uh, Black Opera was a very liberatory music. You know, of course, Marian Anderson, they wouldn't let her sing. Um, I think it was Carnegie Hall. And so she was invited to sing uh, on the reflecting pool. Um, that's a part of our black liberation story. Paul Roberson, we know uh, how powerful his voice is and, and his statement around black liberation. And, and many of us don't know the relationship between black landowners and black opera. So we wanna explore that. And, and besides, you know, who, who, who talks about black opera? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we, we're mm -hmm. educating, uh, we're inspiring. And these events we have August. We haven't uh, finalized the, the event for August, but it'll be just as juicy as the other ones. We'll take a month off and then the film will be screened. So these are uh, events, uh, these curated events are a way for us to continue to engage audiences, get them excited, informed, uh, keep the, the momentum moving. So when the film does arrive, the folks will be waiting with bated breath. Uh, and some of what we've learned throughout the course of the curated series um, will come to bear as the film is, is screened throughout the country and eventually throughout the world. Hmm. Well, uh, as we wrap up, let me just uh, again, thank you for coming on our very first episode of The Edric Show. Uh, your home for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Uh, we'll put all of the relevant links in the comment section, uh, links to the, the, the uh, website for the film, Farms to Grow, uh, all of the community events. You'll be able to get all that information in the comment section. Be sure to subscribe to The Edric Show. Uh, and then the last question I'll leave you with in a couple of seconds, projects like this, you're very busy, of course. What do you do for downtime? How do you practice self-care? How do you take care of yourself? Because to fight like you do and to tell these stories, you've got to take some time for yourself. So what do you yeah. like to do to, uh, to balance it all out? Well, Edric, I also garden. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I put in a garden uh, at a friend's house mm. and dug out the, the grass. Uh, took a lot of before and after pictures, put in some squash, some kale, uh, some eggplant, some basil. And that's what I like to do. I like to get my hands in the sand, my hands in the soil. I bike and I just try to take it easy, you know? Um, yeah, I just, I just try to self-care of a, a really good support system. I also care for my mom. So I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm in Florida. <clears throat> every two weeks and I'm, you know, at home every two weeks, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, during this particular time, it's, you know, it's been a little challenging Absolutely. ordinarily. I, you know, I'm on, I'm, I'm out there tending my collard greens and <laughs> giving them away and watching all the bees that love the flowers uh, from the various plants, um, the basil most of the time that's just grown uh, in the, in the, in the garden. So yeah, that's my go-to. I like, you know, as I walks, bikes and uh, water sports. I'm also, I love to fish. Yep. Uh, grew up fishing in, in my family. And so I love it. 
Awesome. Well, again, Dr. Myers, thank you so much uh, for all of your work. Um, again, the documentary film is titled Rhythms of the Land, a multimedia documentary film. It is a valentine to the generations of black farmers in the United States from enslavement period to the present, whose intense love of the land and dedication to the community enabled them to survive against overwhelming odds. So Dr. Myers, best of luck with the film. Uh, we hope and, and continue success with Farms yeah. to Grow and all yeah. the good work you're doing for the, the folks in, in Oakland, California. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank, Thank you, you again so for being the first guest, the very Thank first guest on The Edric really Show. You. You're very welcome. This has you been The Edric Show. Well. Thank you for tuning in. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can get all the notifications when we upload new content. I am Edric Jerome. We will talk again.